Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our session on compensation and damages. My name is Megan Butler, and I'm here to introduce our speakers for today. We've got two papers, the first one very technical and the second one very profession professionalism-related. First up, we have Franz Kroening um, presenting a paper entitled The 2011 Population Mortality Tables for Quantum of Damage Calculations. France is a man of many interests and many talents, and this paper represents the happy confluence of his work as head of department at the School of Mathematical Statistics and Actuarial Science at the University of the Free State, his work as a consultant, and his work on various ASA committees. He actually sits on five, and he sits on the Compensation and Damages Committee, um, where he has um, circulated this work before for comment. He's hoping for lots of comment, lots of constructive comment. So I'd like to welcome France to the podium. Thank you very much, uh, Megan. Uh, welcome, uh, everyone. Thank you for coming to this uh, interesting, I hope, uh, discussion. Um, yeah, uh, this uh, mortality table is not always the most interesting topic, and I also didn't go to the uh, speaker training session, so let's see how it goes. Um, in any case, uh, this work is mostly done by one of my students, um, Christelle van der Merwe. Um, so uh, if anything goes wrong, I'm just going to blame her in, in her absence. In any case, uh, so uh, I hope to send at least some chills down your spine, some of the Younger guys, uh, this is mostly CT4 work, so let's get into it. Um, so, I see there's a disparity between the two. Okay, so my talk will quickly be about, I'll just introduce it, we'll discuss the census of 2001 and 2011, and the data, and, and maybe a bit of a recon between the two. And then after that, I'll show you the graduation that we did, on the crude rate and then compare it to a few other studies. So just as a, a quick introduction, um, where this comes from or, or where it fits into the damages calculations, basically if you need to do a damage calculation, you will consider the, the pre-incident um, condition of someone, basically probably a, a normal person, normal mortality, and very often a normal population mortality. And then you consider the post-incident uh, income, uh, and of course the difference between the two will give you your, your quantum of, of, of damage. So basically, the, the normal population mortality is where our focus lies. All right, so um, the current situation in South Africa is that we are using old tables of 1985, which is uh, very interesting. It doesn't include the black population, first of all. Uh, in those days, we didn't mind uh, or bother counting them. Um, it's race-based, so basically it, they've got Indians, uh, Asians, colored people, and whites. Um, and then it's pre-HIV, so there are some arguments that uh, um, it is our last snapshot before HIV. So if we want to, because uh, we have no information on HIV and we cannot set up non-HIV tables for a population, um, it's not a, a, an actual cause of death really. Um, so it is our last snapshot and that is why some people prefer to use it. But it's also pre-ARV usage and income levels 
are then projected onto those tables of 30 years back and then used in, in the current situation. All right, so uh, this study is trying to address the issue to get new up-to-date tables. Um, although the current uh, graduation that we did is already five years old, so whatever you see there, you still have to adjust for the last five years. Um, also, ARVs have changed slightly. Uh, more people are using it. Um, the usage uh, has, has changed, maybe improved ARVs. Um, and then, of course, uh, yeah, okay, the most recent data is then from there. And uh, I can see some eyebrows lifting about where my data came from. So we'll consider that now. All right, so um, the data is available, of course, to anyone. It's in the public space. You can get it from the Stats SA web, um, and that's where we got it from. Um, and then also we got our deaths data directly from them, which is most uh, up-to-date deaths. Sometimes deaths in 2011 are only reported two years or three years later. Um, and then if you get the deaths from, from, let's say, 2015, which is when we received it, it will include those deaths. Uh, if we look at the, um, the course-specific deaths, um, then only 17,000, according to them, people died in 2011 due to HIV, which is clearly not a correct figure, and it actually went up from 2010, uh, 2001, which is also not correct. Now, so it's not possible to, to set up any sort of table without HIV. So we need to check the validity of tests, validity of total numbers at each age, and for that we did a bit of a census recon. So let's look at that. If you consider this, um, what we did is we said, okay, Someone in 2001 that was counted and still alive would also be counted in 2011. So if we take, let's say, everybody aged 10 year old in 2001, by 2011 they should all be 20 year old. So if you subtract all the deaths that happened in between for that cohort of ages that goes forward, then you should get a recon between the two. And very interesting, you can see here, that these two lines, so for example, that little row there, or a little peak there, these little peaks and rows, they represent more or less the same, well, they, the, the same age group. So these might be 41-year-olds uh, that were basically 31-year-olds in 2001 minus deaths. And the very interesting thing is how these sort of lines almost match exactly uh, if you take those deaths into account. The big differences occur in the younger ages, and uh, we can look at the differences on their own. If you look at it, most differences from age 37 backwards, um, and after that, few differences occurred. Um, of course, that can just be random error, it could be differences in census methods, um, and so forth. So the question is, how do we explain this initial big difference? Now. The first part, this one is, is huge, but uh, what I can say here is that basically in 2011, someone aged five would not have been born in 2001. So what we did is we used births instead of a census. We used, let's say, births of age um, 2006, and then we added the deaths for five years to get to, to this figure. Okay, so we subtracted this. So, and uh, of course, there's a bit of 
um, a difference between a number of births and the census. So we got this huge differences. And of course, the second idea is it could be possibly due to um, immigrations and, and there are also, also arguments for unreporting of deaths and so forth. So if we add up those differences, so instead of adding these negative ones that would just reduce the, the figure, I just added all the positives. And if you look at that, these were the figures. So all ages, roughly 5% difference in the recon, which is not too bad considering it's over 10 years. Uh, 0 to 18, so this huge chunk at the beginning, was 6.5%, which is uh, the biggest portion. And then after that, it got a lot lower and again at the above 30 or, or 30 to 90 is a very small percentage actually difference um, considering the, the method. So, uh, of course, uh, if you had the Great Limpopo Wall, um, uh, then uh, uh, immigrations would not be an issue, but we have to allow for that. So, if you account for immigrations after the age of 15, it's the figure that we could get, we had almost a million people, according to Stats SA again, there are some differences in opinion about uh, the number of immigrations. In any case, and the total number in difference between our figures are 1.3 million, so there's basically 450,000 unaccounted for. And this account is 1.23% of the uh, population above the age of 15. So basically, if we did the recon, there was just 1.23% that we could not explain. Um, if you allow this 1.23% occurred over a period of 10 years, so it's just 0.123% per annum um, or the small amount, and uh, it could be various reasons again, like I mentioned. All right, so let's get to the graduation itself. This is what it looked like. So this is just the raw data, a plot of the raw data of 2001 and the raw data 2011. The males are the, the top line bad mortality, females a lot better. I actually gave this uh, data to my CT4 students and they, they plotted the line all the way up there and back down to 120. Um, very interesting. All right, so um, if, we, if we look at the male and female on its own and uh, consider how that looks, then uh, we can see here the females in 2000, uh, the, the little gray line is 2001, for those who can't see, and the darker line, 2011, and that will be the case throughout. Um, so the gray line, obviously that's what we call the HIV hump, um, and the dark line, you can clearly see that it came down significantly for females as well as for males from 2001 to 2011. So that is obvious effect of um, the ARV usage. So then we went on, and uh, obviously you can also see after the age of around 90, it becomes very difficult to, to, to say, um, do a graduation. It breaks down completely. What we can see is that, of course, um, the mortality dropped a lot in the 2011, the darker line, compared to the, um, uh, the lighter line there for 2001. Um, also, if I just go back one, you can see here in 2001 that sort of starts to go haywire at around 80, maybe it's a bit small, and in 2011 it starts to go haywire at around 90. 
So maybe in 10 more years we can get a decent graph up to the age of 100, something like that. Right. So now we did the graduation, 2001 female. You can see we plot the line on that gray line uh, up to age 90 only and also for males. Uh, this is 2001. So on this side you have the normal graph, on that side the log scale. So the HIV hump is very clearly visible here, 2001. And we did the same for 2011. Okay, so uh, we did use... Um, to, to graduate this, we used uh, formulas to, to plot uh, onto the graph. Um, we try to adhere to the data a lot more. It's population tables, so, so we want to fit this as close as possible to the data. Obviously, we couldn't get one line to just fit everything, so we used different uh, sections or different age groups, plotted the lines, and obviously, if you plot two lines, they, they would not necessarily match at the exact age, so we just hand smoothed them uh, sort of in between. All right, so uh, these are the graduated rates. So it's for 2001 and 2011 if you compare females. Um, so females uh, for both males and females at young ages, our rates show heavier mortality. Um, there are arguments that it's even heavier due to unreporting of deaths, nonetheless. Um, and then, of course, the HIV hump that flattened quite significantly. Now, you can argue that is the line that you should draw if there was no HIV. Um, we have a good argument. If you consider the next slide, this is Botswana census. Now, look at Botswana census. It's a bit uh, of a blurry picture. It's the best I could draw from the report. 91 is the blue line. So the 91 census shows a nice, smooth graph, heavy mortality in any case, and then by 2001, HIV was in, in, in uh, full-blown um, portions in, in Botswana, so we see this massive HIV hump here, although at the older ages, uh, mortality came down significantly. And then Botswana went and, and said, okay, free ARVs to everyone, and immediately, in 10 years, this flattened down to almost a non-existent hump. So we can argue something like that, maybe... Not sure how scientifically, but uh, given what we see, the effect was in, for example, in a neighboring country, it's probably going to be similar here. So then uh, this is uh, basically what we used to extend our graph to, instead of just ending it at 90, we extended it to, um, to 100 using a Newton mortality, and you can see the dark one is our graduation, and the, the bottom one is the, the standard table that we use to extend it. And then this is just a comparison between the old uh, South African life tables, 85. Here you can see the, the, the stripe line is the whites at the time, and our current mortality is a lot heavier than what they are currently using there so basically, if you are paying on road accident fund claims based on that line, you are paying way more than what the true population mortality should actually be. And it's the same for all of uh, the dark line in each case um, is uh, our graduation. And then just uh, another last comparison uh, with other countries. You can see uh, this uh, dotted line there at the bottom. Um, is England, uh, then there's Australia, then there's also USA, the greyish line there, 
not sure if it's obesity or what it is that's making them retire. Um, and then, uh, of course, our graduation of our population. So just a couple of concluding remarks. Uh, mortality seemed to have improved at the very young ages and also at the older ages, um, while in the middle the effect is blurred because of HIV. With uh, increased art usage, that HIV AMP has reduced significantly in the last five years, probably even more so, with more ARVs and, and, and making it free. Um, and then this population table captures the mortality of all races in the country, um, so it's not a race-based table, um, and also the shape of, of mortality. And although certain adjustments um, are left for, for you as a, maybe a final user, I think this is a, a good starting point, and, and my hope is that, um, if anything, this can at least convince you to read the paper and maybe um, work on it a little bit. Thank you very much. Thank you, France, for a very thought-provoking paper. We do have 10 minutes for questions, but we have a slightly unusual situation in that Professor Rob Darrington um, wanted to make some comments and ask some questions and to do so with slides so he doesn't have to wave his arms and pretend to be a graph. So if we can cue um, the slides and get a mic to Professor Darrington. Oh, you'll come here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <clears throat> uh, it, it's a little bit sad that it's unusual that I'd, someone commenting on a paper might want to use slides. It's, it suggests that discussion has uh, petered out somewhat since, since uh, um, the turn of the century. Um, <clears throat> uh, as, as is kindly acknowledged in the paper, I, I, I have provided uh, uh, detailed feedback on the uh, dissertation upon which this was based. Um, unfortunately, not all of those comments um, uh, uh, have, have, have been acted on. Um, uh, so there's a lot I could say, but I'm going to confine myself to just three aspects. The first is uh, the lack of adjustment for um, uh, 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 under-registration of deaths. The second is the graduation, and the third is just to uh, uh, show comparison um, of, of some indices with uh, about seven uh, existing life tables for South Africa in 2011. Um, so this first slide here uh, is the ratio of the rates produced uh, by France uh, uh, and his student uh, to uh, the life table that we are using um, for the uh, uh, rapid mortality surveillance uh, um, uh, report. Um, and uh, as you can see, uh, the ratio is between uh, 90 and 95% uh, for most of the adult ages. Um, and that is a measure of under-registration of deaths. We have corrected uh, the uh, mortality data for what we estimate as the extent of under-registration using death distribution methods. But the authors seem to argue um, that there uh, shouldn't 
there wasn't a need um, to, to make such an adjustment, and I'll, I'll, I'll address that now. You can see a big pro uh, difference um, in terms of the mortality of children. And then at the old ages, you see that actually the ratio goes above one uh, and then drops below uh, 90%. And I, I would argue that, that that's age exaggeration in the census, which has been allowed for in, uh, in our estimates, but isn't corrected um, uh, in, in the estimates uh, in the paper. Um, now, uh, why do the authors think that there's no need to adjust for uh, under-registration? Well, I think, in terms of the paper, that paragraph uh, 3.7, which refers to um, the RMS report, misunderstands uh, uh, what we did in the RMS report. In particular, there's a sentence that reads, uh, the RMS data uh, was, was adjusted to more closely reflect uh, status A vital registration data, which is the data used in this paper to construct the life tables, and therefore um, uh, it's left in unadjusted format. Now, the RMS makes two adjustments. One is it's for, for the recent estimates, the most recent estimates, using a death data from the population register and needs to adjust that to get to what the vital registration would be when it's reported because the vital registration has a lag. Um, and then secondly, those data are adjusted for under-registration. So uh, the authors seem to ha have missed the fact that we adjust those data um, for under-registration. Um, uh, their second uh, uh, argument seems to be in the, uh, in the census reconciliation, um, uh, where, where they, take, uh, they find a 1% difference and divide by 10 and say that's trivial. Um, now, there are a number of problems in that section. Firstly, figures 1 and 2 contradict one, and one another. Um, figure, figure 1, which I think is correct, shows that uh, the uh, 2011 census lies above their projection from uh, 2001. Um, but figure two seems to suggest there's a positive difference. If you take uh, the 2011 census from the 2001 projection, but it should be negative. Um, <clears throat> and then they uh, suggest that um, one of the explanations could be an under-registration of deaths. Um, uh, so if we accept that uh, figure two is correct, then that's what they're arguing. Um, now, a 1% uh, difference um, uh, um, in, in the 2011 census is about a 5% difference in the deaths, and a 5% difference in the deaths is a 5% difference in deaths, not 5% divided by 10 years, because the deaths are short by 5%. Um, so <clears throat> what they were arguing, I think, was a trivial adjustment to the census population um, is actually a more significant adjustment to the deaths, but it doesn't matter because they, their sign was the wrong way around. And then lastly, of course, the error could be in the census and not in the deaths, so I don't think that that um, justifies uh, anything, really. Uh, turning to the graduation, um, uh, in, 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 in the original dissertation, it, it wasn't entirely clear how they got their QX, but it seems that uh, it was the deaths for 2011 divided by the census population in 2011. Now, that is a closer approximation to MX than QX. Um, and uh, I, I, I wonder if that's uh, uh, what they did do. Um, but rather strangely, um, I didn't expect to see this, but um, I, I looked at the smoothness of the rates. Um, I, and, and, and given the way it was graduated, I thought, you know, you would get smooth rates. 
Um, so what, what we're looking at there is, is the age ratio. So we take for age X, we uh, take the, uh, the rate and divide by the average rate for X minus 1X and X plus 1, and you should expect it to be uh, fairly close to 1. And uh, there seems to be quite a lot of noise. Uh, so it made me wonder whether the table that's published there is actually the graduated rates um, or, 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 or the, um, the uh, crude rates. And then lastly, um, that's a comparison um, of uh, various indicators. The first slide, under five mortality rates. Second is uh, life expectancy at birth. The third is your adult mortality, 45Q15, expressed as a percentage. And the last is your E60. Um, and as you'll see, um, uh, the under five mortality is way lower than I uh, any of the other seven tables. Um, uh, uh, the life expectancy is higher than uh, any of the other tables. Uh, the 45Q15 um, is, is lower than the ta uh, tables from which we can get that estimate. Um, and it's only E60 that's roughly the same, uh, at least to, to the RMS and to the estimates from Tembisa. Um, <coughs> and uh, that's possibly because it's higher um, uh, at the old at old ages and then lower at the extremely old ages, and so it sort of averages uh, out. Um, and so we would have to, um, if we supported this, be uh, pretty sure that uh, we are doing something that is much better than other people um, uh, in terms of estimating uh, mortality, that uh, uh, we would stand by that. And then just one last uh, uh, comment about uh, the possibility of setting up a non-AIDS uh, life table. Um, uh, this already exists. The Tembisa model uh, requires it as, as input, and it's derived from the Burden of Disease, uh, um, uh, uh, South African Burden of Disease 2010 uh, study, where uh, the uh, MRC Burden of Disease unit uh, uh, attempted to estimate the number of AIDS deaths and remove those, and so we get some idea of the non-AIDS uh, mortality. Thank you. Professor, thank you very much for the comments. Um, I think I'm going to leave that long discussion with the audience, and, and maybe it will convince them even more to go and read the paper. Um, what I can just very quickly say is uh, that the paper does caution uh, at the younger ages because we don't have the initial census. We, we started with um, the, the, the principle of correspondence doesn't... Um, exactly apply to the very young ages. Um, so it does caution, and, and second of all, um, it does say that the user should go and apply adjustments that they think is best. I, I, I did not, or, or we did not uh, suggest how you should allow for under-registration of deaths or, or maybe overestimation at older ages or, or stuff like that. So, so if, if, if you feel um, that is the best way forward, you, you can still apply those uh, judgments and, and, and adjust your rates accordingly. Um, in terms of smoothness, uh, I think any two graduations uh, would differ. There is obviously an amount of subjectivity in, in any uh, graduation, so two people would typically get to two to different graduations, and especially where you uh, do a bit of hand polishing, there would normally be uh, a bit of random variation. Um, 
the size of that uh, is, is, of course, debatable. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave it to, to you guys to, to decide. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very good base. I think what we did is, is simply applied the, the graduation to the census data, looked at the deaths, looked at the, um, the, the exposure, graduated that, and um, what it showed is that um, it is much higher than the previous tables being used in damage calculations. And, and um, if you pay out amounts based on the previous tables, you'll pay out much higher amounts rather than using these tables, which will reduce the amounts, um, which may be good or bad. Um, that's up to you. Thank you, Megan. So thank you very much, Franz, for all the hard work you've put in on that paper. I think one comment that Professor Dorrington made, which was very important, was that he referred to us moving towards new tables. And I think if using the old salt tables is something that we as a profession are concerned about, it's going to take more than the efforts of just one or two isolated individuals. So we don't have time for more, com for more questions on Francis's paper now. We might have more time at the end. But I really would encourage you to read Francis's paper, to read Professor Dorrington's work, and to actually engage in the development of the new life tables in this area. I'd now like to welcome um, Mickey Lather and Jonathan Watt to the podium, if you'd like to, to come up. Mickey. Mickey and Jonathan are presenting a paper on towards best practice in the actuarial assessment of claims for maintenance against deceased estates. Mickey is no stranger to the actuaries in the room, particularly after his CPD presentation yesterday, which we're all quite excited about. Mickey has a special interest in governance and professional conduct and professional development. He has written papers before on professional issues and the quantification of damages claims. He is joined by Jonathan Mort, who hails from a legal background. His bespoke legal practice is familiar to many of the pensions actuaries in the room. However, today they are here to discuss professional issues arising on maintenance claims in the States. Over to you, Mickey. Thank you, Megan. As they say, where there's a will, there's a waiting crowd of relatives, all with competing claims against the estate. And many of you, um, I'm sure you're here, because you have been asked to place a value uh, on, on a claim uh, for, for support. And th there are a lot of similarities in these claims with uh, you know, the, the conventional road accident fund claim for damages. But on the other hand, there are a lot of differences. And just like France was saying, you know, given our professional promise to do things right in the public interest and using out-of-date mortality tables is, is actually paying people the wrong amount. Similarly, if we do not um, do these maintenance claims the right way, whatever the right way might be, uh, we're doing a disservice to um, society. There, there is little guidance or no guidance uh, about how, how to do these things. And that was the reason really for our, our project, um, that from an actuarial and a legal point of view, we'd, we'd been involved and seen um, claims being done in quite different ways. 
and we felt it was very important that two actuaries asked to look at the same claim should produce pretty similar results unless there was some specific reason not to. get the next slide. There we are. Um, so in our short little talk, uh, Jonathan is going to help us with the legal aspects. That's the first two items. Um, and then I'll take over to take us through the topic as far as I can see, linking it to our professional promise to act in the public interest. And then um, hopefully get some comment from you. But remind you that this is just a summary of what's in the paper. And, um, just like France, invite you, please, to, to, to read uh, the work that, um, especially our guest has put a lot of work into uh, writing a paper for you, so please take the time to read it. Jonathan. Thanks, Mickey. It's um, really good to be with all my actuarial colleagues. Um, the, the most important thing at the outset is to draw a distinction between a compensatory claim and a maintenance claim. And a compensatory claim is one where it arises out of damages, so there's been some wrongdoing. Uh, somebody may have died because of a car accident or something, but a maintenance claim is one that's, that, that is where you want to continue support and there hasn't been this aspect of damages or, or wrongdoing. And the two essential key features of each which distinguish the one from the other. The, the compensatory claim is not subject to any affordability of the person who must pay it, uh, whereas the maintenance claim is definitely, unquestionably subject to affordability, as we will see. The, the compensatory claim is it's possible also, um, hypothetically, although there hasn't been much thought developed around this, for it to take account of a prospective likely increase in the income that the, the deceased would have, would have received. Um, whereas with a maintenance claim, it's all to do with the, the current standard of living. And you, you can't really assume that there, there would be an increase. Um, so, so moving on then, and this is my, um, I think, uh, let's just see. There we go. Oops. This is the only slide that I'm talking to. Um, so I won't be very long. Um, the duty of support is, is key to understanding uh, how the maintenance claims work. Um, parents owe their dependent children they may not necessarily be minors, but certainly whilst they are minors, they are dependent, but they owe their dependent children a lifelong duty of support. In other words, for as long as they live and beyond, that duty of support continues. It's a burden on their estate, and it's a claim payable from their estate. And to understand how that whole process works, you need to appreciate the mechanisms in the Administration of Estates Act, which governs how estates are actually wound up. Essentially, an executor is appointed by the Master of the High Court, and the executor, once he's also authorized, then proceeds to gather in the assets and um, pay the creditors. And one of those creditors 
would be a claim for maintenance out of the estate. And that is, that is only fixed when the estate account um, lies for inspection, submitted to the master, approved by the master, then lies for inspection. And, and once that happens, then um, there, uh, there, there, there's a valid claim against the uh, estate. And there is a kind of quasi-judicial process which follows if there's a dispute around the claim. So if, if and this has happened, Mickey and I have been in cases like this, um, the spouse claims a big amount of money and the, the, the children, not of that spouse, but of the deceased, dispute the, the amount of that claim, then there's a whole process that you can go through. And this is exactly where, as Mickey was saying, you would like to think two actuaries, each advising the different parties, would actually have a common understanding about what is, what is required to be shown. Um, and, and it's also important as well, apart from anything else, because the, the actuarial calculation and report would be the voucher that's submitted to the, the master of the High Court. Firstly, the executor would have to accept it. Then the master would have to accept it. The other person who's got a particular interest in all of this is SARS, because the amount of the maintenance claim is deductible as a liability against the estate, so it effectively reduces the estate duty payable. And in another matter, Mickey and I were involved and there was a very, very large uh, maintenance claim against a very big estate because there hadn't been proper estate planning done. And, and we had to actually proceed, you know, to show that this wasn't some, some scheme to get around reducing estate duty and meeting with SARS and so on. So, so the, the, you, actuaries need to appreciate that your reports will be very closely interrogated to see how um, uh, correct they are. The next aspect of this to understand is that um, there is an act called the Maintenance of Surviving Spouses Act. Now, it was introduced, I think, in the 70s because under the old Roman Dutch common law, there was no claim for maintenance by a spouse against a deceased estate. And it is rather bizarre, but that was what the common law was. This Maintenance of Surviving Spouses Act is, is very short, and it simply says that, in, in brief terms, um, a spouse has a claim against the estate of the deceased spouse for the provision of reasonable maintenance needs until death or remarriage, insofar as that surviving spouse is not able to provide for that from their own means and earnings. So that's where the, this affordability component comes in. And, and clearly in most marriages, because they would have pooled their resources, they would have uh, each been dependent on the other for maintaining a certain standard of living, and there would have been a claim that would be calculable. Um, so, so that's that particular aspect. Um, and it's important that when actuaries do that kind of calculation, then they take account of what the surviving spouse's own means are. Not only their own capital resources, um, which could be something like, um, did they get a benefit from a, a policy of the uh, payable on the deceased's death, but also their own income earning capacity and retirement savings and so on. 
Um, the other aspect that's really quite important is how, what, what the marital system was that applied to the marriage. Were they married in community property, out of community property? Did they have the accrual system applicable? Um, or did they have some other system applicable, which is possible, for how they were going to share what they accumulated together? Because that claim under the antinuptial contract, if there was an accrual system, applies before you calculate what the maintenance is. And, and the effect of that is that you calculate what the claim is under the accrual system, it reduces the value of the estate uh, that, you know, from which you can make the claim for maintenance, but it also reduces, obviously, the amount of the maintenance claim because the surviving spouse is then better off as a result of the accrual claim. Um, but that calculation would then also have to take account of possible claims by the children for, for maintenance. As regards the children, um, the law isn't particularly clear. There isn't an equivalent act of, uh, like the Maintenance of Surviving Spouses Act. What does seem clear is that both spouses have an equal duty according to their respective means. There is an argument apparently that the claim for the surviving spouse on behalf of the minor child against the estate is limited, it is only applies if the surviving spouse himself or herself can't provide the maintenance. But, but oh, I, I think it's, it's because it was a common, you know, a joint duty during the lifetime, it's sure to be um, a, a duty that will apply equally against the estate. Um, then the other aspect that uh, actuaries may become involved in, just to wrap up slightly, uh, quickly, is um, Oh, the, the important thing to realize is the Maintenance of Surviving Spouses Act doesn't apply, obviously, if people aren't married. And there was a constitutional course case about that. And certainly with heterosexual couples, the court said, if you have the opportunity to marry and you don't marry, then you can't come along and claim that it's discriminatory, uh, that you can't get the benefit of this act if you choose not to marry. Um, uh, Yes, Chippy. Yes. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Good. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Sorry to cut off those last points, but I think we we need to to move on. Um, Jonathan's talked about uh, the the legal aspect. Yes, because I can see Megan staring at her watch there. So let me quite quickly go through um, the next bits. Um, you you. you um, you've heard so often about our professional promise, and you should have, because you've all signed up to it in your code of conduct. Um, and we found it useful to describe the field by using those uh, three um, legs of the promise. And perhaps if I can just highlight one or two of, of each, each area. I mean, the, the normative issues, I think, is the, is the big one here. And two issues that really struck us are impartiality and communication. And I think the impartiality was really the spur for this project because it's so easy to advocate for your client. You know, this um, starving widow comes to you and says, you know, all these rotters are keeping me out of my money. How am I going to live? You know, please help me. And, you know, it's very easy to, to, to help her. Um, it's only human nature. But as Jonathan says, the executor is relying on your report. <clears throat> 
And, and often, I mean, there's no, there may well be no lawyers, and the executor may just be the deceased brother. <laughs> there may be no financial experts in here. So your report may well be taken as the, as the only expert influence and, and never get questioned. Um, and then the communication one. We've all passed, or the, 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 those of you a little bit younger than me, uh, have had to pass the communication exam. Um, so you know how to communicate. But do you actually take the conscious, make the conscious effort to communicate? Because sometimes these issues are very complex um, and, and technical. So you, you, you have to make an effort. And I've got a wonderful example, but I don't have time to tell you about it. But you can ask me afterwards about the UCT example of communication. Uh, you, so you might still fail, but at least make uh, a, an effort. So then uh, technical issues, again, just to, 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 to highlight some of them. Uh, Jonathan's talked about you know, the, this aspect of the it's what's important according to the Act, and that's what we have to go by, is the standard of living of the spouse. We're not doing the reductio, and what's it, RII? Um, restitutio in integrum. That's, that's the purpose of the road accident claim, putting the person back into the position they were. Um, and so it's important to offset the assets that the um, surviving spouse has to survive, to support herself. And um, in this case that I mentioned earlier, um, there was no mention, I mean, this <laughs> it sort of gets on to point three here, there's a mixture of, of data and assets. The, 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 uh, it's, it's always very difficult for the actuary to deal with the data in these cases, but this was a lady who said, well, she was used to getting a new BMW every two years, so please value that. But on the other hand, there was absolutely no mention of any assets. So there's this very, apparently, wealthy lady driving all these BMWs, but absolutely no deduction for any assets. Now, maybe that was a specific instruction to this actuary, and maybe you can do that, that sort of thing, I'm not sure. But if, if that was the case, and it was so far out from the normal thing, there should be several pages of disclaimers and saying, well, you know, this is what I was told to do. I've had no opportunity to check that she actually did uh, get two BMW every two years and that she's absolutely penniless and has, has nothing apart from her mansion in Santon to live in. Um, and, and the child, again, the, Jonathan raised the point. I mean, there's this whole bit of legislation about the duty of the surviving spouse to support a child. And many times I've seen other people's reports, you know, he has a child, there's the deceased father, absolutely no mention about the mother having to, to produce support. And, you know, that may be very nice for, for the claimant, but what about all the other people involved? Again, you are acting, you have, we are acting in the public interest. You can't uh, just happily f leave a little bit out because it's going to help your client. Okay, I'm getting more messages from Megan here, so I won't go really into the contingencies, but do, do read the paper. There's a whole lot of, of, of things there that are different to, to road accident funds. Okay, so very lastly, because this does involve Megan, um, the last strand is the, the organizational strand. You know, how do we actually, as a body, manage this public interest thing? Uh, in the CPD stuff I was talking about yesterday, we're suggesting in any case we do a sort of 
peer review of the way we do our work. So you know, that may well be a, a, a place where we can check what we're doing. But from a more uh, structural point of view, we have now this um, Damages Practice Committee, which wasn't in existence years ago. And, and so maybe they can pick up the ball and, and, and carry it and say, well, how many, pe how many people are actually doing these things? You know, what sort of reports are they providing? Is there some sort of uh, standard that we, we can agree on or Im change and improve? So if we do ha have a, a moment, I'd, I'd like to ask uh, Megan from, if, if, there's a, if there's a view or a, something from the, from the practice committee about whether it, you know, it, is this important to take it forward? Because, uh, you know, the end result of our, our work should be all the parties, not just, not just the widow on the left, but also the second widow on the right, and not just the children on the left, but also the children on the right. All the parties uh, get, their, get their fair share. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mickey, and this will certainly be something on our agenda for our Compensation and Damages Committee meeting on the 7th of December. So you have, you have our commitment that we will, we will be discussing this as an issue. Do we have, we have 10 minutes available for questions, so what I'd like to do is have some questions on estates first, and if there's time, we'll invite France back up and we can have an open floor discussion on his paper. So, Walter? Yeah, Mike is headed your way. Thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Walter Scheffler. Um, uh, my entrance claims is the only actual work I do at the moment, so this is a bit subject of mine. Um, I was to pick up on a couple of points. Firstly, the mortality, which is very interesting. I think if we agree on a mortality basis for um, damages, we should actually use a slightly lighter mortality table for maintenance claims because we're working with a more affluent uh, uh, lot of people. Uh, the fact that there is an estate being uh, executed puts him in a higher income bracket. And in the old days, we had the white population statistics, which um, to some extent provided that, and which I, for one, use for all races now, uh, the, the lighter of um, a model of it. It's just a, a point. And I think if we are to act in the interest of the public, well, like we should, one of the other things is we must keep the cost of these things down because there's not a lot of money available in general for these, and cost is a very sensitive issue, which is worrying for the peer review, which I think is a good idea, but we'll have to think of ways to keep the level down. If I can just pick up on a couple of the contingencies, if I may. Um, the Act states that we should actually take the duration of the marriage into account, and it should take remarriage into account. And I think one shouldn't do a report without putting something in for remarriage and putting something in for the duration of the marriage. Uh, what we do, for example, on the duration of marriage, we say after five years there's no reduction. If it's less than five years, we reduce it by 1% for every month that is less than five years. So we start off at 40% of the claim, working up to 100% over five years. And if there's children involved, we start at 70% and go half percent increments, percentage points, up to 100%. It is accepted fairly well. I really not find anything. Something I got, we, well, I actually would suggest that we have a sessional meeting afterwards and we discuss these specific points, so that if we uh, ever get into a, um, a contested claim, that we argue about the size of the maintenance, which is the important thing, not about the actuarial, the demographic, or the other issues, that we have some sort of understanding on what is reasonable and what is not on that. Um, remarriage, for example, I think we should, it was a fairly light table, very light table, because 
Nobody gets remarried if he's going to lose a lot of money. Um, so it's not an important issue, but I think it's important that you put it into the report and don't leave it for the executive. He's got no chance of doing that. He's got no background. You will not do it. You've now actually uh, firstly lied that you did this in terms of the, of the act because you didn't. And you've put it, uh, the, the job to somebody who's not going to do it. So there's going to be no deduction for the marriage. That's actually what you're advocating by leaving it out. Um, uh, I've uh, made a calculation in my head. I've done more than a thousand of these claims. Less than one percent of them had an, a legal person actually involved in the claim. Maybe 10% had an attorney, but he was asking me how it works, because it was the first time ever he's done one. So uh, don't rely on the, there's not a lot of Jonathan Mortz around, unfortunately. If there were, we could do more like, the, uh, like we do with compensation claims, but you can't do it with maintenance claims. It's not practical, and it will also push up the cost to an, uh, an area where it's actually not uh, viable. Thank you very much. But I, I have to conclude this saying this is an excellent paper. They did a hell of a good job. They covered all the bases. They wrote a lot of sense. And I think we can go past that and go to the integrity and sessional meetings. So I want to thank both of the authors for that. It's a good paper. Thank you. Any comments? Is this, well, first of all, just to thank Walter because uh, he was a large contributor to, to the paper in its early stages. Um, so thank you for. <laughs> Yes, but, but certainly the contingencies, if you read the paper, um, yes, I, we very much agree with that, that uh, there's, because it's often such a complex uh, uh, matter to calculate, there are going to be issues that you can't put an exact number on. So contingencies is the exact place to deal with it and say to the executor and the parties, hang on, there's these other issues. I can't put a number on them, so you must put a number on them. Uh, you know, suck your thumb, but it's an issue. And if you want to ignore it, well, you ignore it. But I can't put a number on it, but it's more, it is important that I raise the flag that that issue exists. If, if I can just make one comment. I think one of the big risks that actuaries may encounter is having to work with a lawyer who's only used to dealing with damages claims and approaches it from, from, from not from the right angle. And then you have the actuary trying to persuade the lawyer about the right basis. So you, you, you just need to be quite firm in, in doing it the right way. <laughs> Are there any other comments? Hi, Wim Lutz. Um, one of the areas in, in this field that I find a bit challenging sometimes is specifically where it comes to the spouse's means to support herself particularly where she wasn't working at the time. Mm. So in a common law, loss of support claim, a third-party claim, you would normally ignore that. The spouse is not required to mitigate the losses by going out to work. For, for these claims, you need to make some sort of allowance. But let's, for instance, say she, the spouse wasn't working for the last 10 years. She might still be young enough to go out and seek work, or she might have a professional qualification. But there's no guidance. There's no industrial psychologist that's been uh, appointed. And the attorney normally looks to you to make some sort of allowance or... I think it's up to us to, to come up with some sort of something sensible. I'm not sure whether you have any guidelines or, or thoughts on that, that issue. Well, there, there has been more thought on this in the distribution of retirement fund uh, death benefits, which is in some ways quite similar to this. And I did a survey, and I'm not sure, in fact, the guys who spoke to us yesterday also had done a survey uh, of pension fund trustees saying, do, do you send the widow out to work or not? Um, 
And certainly the survey I did, the majority of boards of trustees said they would not give support to the widow, um, a young widow, a young competent widow for the rest of her life without uh, thinking about it. So there certainly is scope for uh, saying, no, you can't have the maintenance for the rest of your life. Um, I'm not sure there's an easy answer, but it's, it'd be certainly one of those issues to raise. If you, you, know, you might well say, well, look, I have given her support for the rest of her life, but I raised this issue with the executor, and maybe you want to uh, deduct a contingency for the chance that she, she does actually, or he does go out to, to work at some stage, you know, often when the children have finished school. There, there is a bit of an out in the Maintenance of Surviving Spouses Act because it says there you do have to take account of what the other expectations are from the estate, like like what the heirs are expecting to receive. So so you probably have a basis for saying, well, look, your, your claim is this, but but we're going to reduce it because you could go and work and because the heirs have also got an expectation. You're going to gobble up all their expectation. So, but but that, uh, this is an area that still has to be worked through, I think. We Thanks. Ha we have one or two minutes before lunch. Is there one final question for the authors? The Maintenance of Surviving Spouses Act specifically states that you have to take the earnings ability of the surviving spouse into account. You have to put a value on that. The Act says you have to. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for that comment, and thank you very much to all our speakers today. Mickey, Jonathan, Franz, thank you very much for your contribution in this area. We didn't have much time for interaction on Franz's paper, but I'm sure he'll be happy to chat to you about it over lunch. Thank you very much.